Sanders. Welcome to the Dr. Hedberg Show for cutting-edge practical health information. For the latest articles, videos, and podcasts, visit drhedberg.com. That's D-R-H-E-D-B-E-R-G.com. The information in this show is intended for educational purposes only. Always consult your healthcare professional before attempting anything recommended in this program. And now, here's Dr. Hedberg. Okay, well, welcome everyone. This is Dr. Hedberg, and thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Hedberg Show. I've got a very special guest today, Dr. Jeff Moss. And Dr. Moss is a graduate of the University of Michigan Dental School. In 1974, he practiced dentistry in Grand Rapids, Michigan until 1985. And he employed clinical nutrition in that practice. And he decided to use that experience and enter the professional supplement industry. So for the last 24 years, Dr. Moss has operated Moss Nutrition, which supplies the Moss Nutrition professional line of supplements to practitioners. And since 2000, he has served as adjunct faculty at the University of Bridgeport Nutrition Institute starting with the vitamins and minerals class, and most recently adding the assessment and nutrition class to his teaching responsibilities. He's co-authored the textbook, The Textbook of Nutritional Medicine, by Dr. Melvin Werbach. And Dr. Moss was president of the International and American Association of Clinical Nutritionists from August 2000 to June 2001. Moss Nutrition's website is mossnutrition.com, and those of you who are patients of mine know that I, I'm a big fan of Moss Nutrition products because uh, of the quality and because of all the research behind their products, and uh, just fantastic customer service, and uh, just a great company to work with across the board. So Dr. Moss has definitely been a mentor of mine. He's one of the only doctors out there in the functional medicine world who I listen to and respect. So I'm really excited to have him on. Jeff, thanks for, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks so much for having me. So today we're going to be talking about the gut-brain axis. This is a topic that is kind of sweeping the functional medicine landscape with good reason, we've been addressing this issue for a long time, but we're learning more and more about how the gut flora uh, affect extra-intestinal aspects of the body, the brain, and the rest of the body system. So why don't we jump in, and can you just talk a little bit about how the gut microbiota actually interact with our nervous system? Sure. Uh, there's really several different ways that it does it, and before I get into all of the ways, um, I guess the big picture here is that uh, why this is so interesting and why it is important and so exciting is the way we have, because of the way we've traditionally viewed uh, any type of central nervous system issue, either behavioral, neurodegenerative, we've kind of viewed as the central nervous system kind of hanging out there in space. We viewed the blood-brain barrier as basically impermeable to a lot of different things. And because of that, uh, the way we viewed it and the way we intervened was basically 
uh, looking at it directly, that it really wasn't connected to anything else in the body. And I remember I got this very early on. Uh, as a dentist, you know, the head is just kind of detached from everything else, from a physiologic and, and but mostly in, in terms of a diagnostic and, and, and clinical interventional therapeutic standpoint. And so I think that's the big picture here. We, before we get into the complexities, even if some of it's a bit difficult to understand, the big picture here is that uh, the brain is incredibly influenced by uh, what else is going on in the body and particularly what's going on in the gut. So with that in mind, and there's really several different ways. Number one is uh, what is classically known. We have neuroanatomical uh, pathways, the autonomic nervous system, uh, the vagus nerve, the, the classic anatomy, and the gut flora can have a direct impact on that. But it really, that's only, only the beginning. Uh, it also can have an impact on uh, stress physiology, what is known as the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis. Research shows that gut microflora, and I'll talk about how it does that in just a second, but it has an impact on stress physiology, the, the endocrinology and the pathways involved and how we respond to stressors. Uh, there, of course, is the uh, immunologic impact uh, gut microflora have a direct impact on the immune system in the gut, and most immune cells are in the gut, but beyond that, there's kind of a ripple effect where it has an impact on systemic immunity, and the reason that is important, we now understand that behavioral and neurodegenerative illnesses are primarily inflammatory, that there is a neurologic immune system uh, mediated by some cells in the brain called microglia. They're like inflammatory cells, uh, uh, like if you, if you will, like a, 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 an inflammatory cell, like a, a, a lymphocyte or a neutrophil, uh, but it's in the brain. They call them microglia. And gut microflora can upregulate activity of these microglia the same way they might do it uh, systemically uh, with with the white blood cells we're all familiar with, so that's another way uh, that it that it can do it. Uh, it certainly it also has an impact uh, on the blood brain barriers, uh, as I, I what I mentioned before. This idea that it's kind of impermeable, well, it will have an impact on the blood brain barrier and may basically make it more permeable. We know that uh, imbalances of gut microflora, for example, will will affect the gut barrier, creating leaky gut. Well, the gut microflora can also create leaky brain, for, for lack, uh, lack of a better term. Uh, the, thing, the factors that are involved in terms of creating this scenario, uh, gut microflora are responsible for producing short-chain fatty acids. And in the, uh, positive, from a positive aspect, uh, these uh, short-chain fatty acids are well-known uh, to particularly butyric acid, uh, can uh, improve the health of the gut lining, but there's other short-chain fatty acids that can be produced. And when there's an imbalance, these short-chain fatty acids can actually get into the brain. Uh, we have, if there's a leaky gut, they circulate, go through the blood, a leaky blood-brain barrier, get into the brain and cause uh, disturbances in that way. Uh, they also produce something that most of us are familiar with, uh, GABA, gamma-aminobutyric acid, which can have... Uh, uh, which can have an impact. Uh, another big way that the gut microflora uh, interact uh, 
as most of us know, we all know about serotonin, and we tend to think about serotonin as a central nervous system issue. We're all familiar with SSRIs uh, for uh, depression. Well, in actuality, uh, most of the serotonin is not produced in the brain. When we look at the total body production, most of it is produced in the intestine. And uh, gut microflora, when there's imbalances, can affect uh, the serotonin production in the gut. And this is fairly well known as being uh, related to, uh, uh, related to uh, creating uh, or contributing to IBS, constipation, different types of IBS manifestations. But we now know that this serotonin produced in the gut, which is influenced by gut microflora, can also affect the central nervous system. It's not just a, uh, uh, a systemic IBS uh, type, uh, type scenario. Uh, finally, uh, I did want to talk a little bit more about its impact on the vagus nerve. This is, this is significant. Uh, and the vagus nerve, of course, as we know from our anatomy days, this is a very large nerve that has several different functions, part of which relate uh, to, the, uh, uh, to the gut. But again, this can have uh, systemic manifestations uh, uh, also. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the things that I see very frequently in practice, which ties in with everything you just talked about, uh, links, links to early adverse life events. And if we go back to childhood and we look at antibiotic usage at a very young age, and not just antibiotics, but not being breastfed, C-section, um, poor diet, and then all the psychological and physical traumas that, that uh, people can go through as a kid. There's so many connections there, kind of setting someone up for some difficulties later in life, uh, not just with their microflora, but with mood disorders and irritable bowel, SIBO, inflammatory bowel, and things like that. Did you have anything to add to that regarding early adverse life events and, and a disrupted gut-brain axis? Yeah, you make a very good point. Um, for about 100 years now, we've been conducting this uncontrolled experiment on manipulation of our microbial environment, both in the world around us and the world inside of us, uh, antibiotic use is about 100 years now. And uh, it starts, of course, for most people in terms of direct administration, some people, as you alluded to, very early on. But when we look at the antibiotics in the food supply, uh, it probably starts in utero, uh, mm -hmm. before birth. And so, yeah, you make a, a, a very good point that uh, uh, in our society, after 100 years of antibiotic use, uh, we have created some disturbances uh, in our gut microflora, let alone the microflora world around us. Now, unfortunately, this, of course, is not all black and white. Uh, am I saying that we shouldn't have had antibiotics? Uh, history uh, suggests of infectious disease suggests that uh, there was a lot of benefit, and I'm not going to argue against that for a minute. Uh, there are certain scenarios of uh, certain types of bacterial infections in certain populations, certain individuals, particularly very young and the very elderly, uh, where bacteria or, or antibiotics have definitely, uh, the benefits have definitely outweighed the risks. 
What's the problem, I think, is we have seen gross overuse and misuse. Uh, if they were used the way that uh, they intended in the 20s, when penicillin was first discovered, limited occasional use for significant bacterial infections, I don't think we would be having this conversation that we're having today, or we'd have this conversation, but it would take on a very different uh, path. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the overuse and the misuse has really put us where we're at. So I'm not condemning antibiotics. I'm condemning poor decision-making about antibiotic use. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, giving antibiotics for viruses and, uh, yeah, they've definitely been overprescribed, but as you said, we definitely needed them. So I mentioned a few illnesses uh, mainly related to the gut, but can you talk a little bit more about all of the illnesses that could be impacted sure. by an abnormal gut microflora? Yeah, there's some very interesting uh, research on this. Uh, autism, of course, is probably the illness that may come to mind first for a lot of people. Uh, this whole very controversial idea of a connection between the gut uh, and autistic disorders. And uh, there is good research that suggests that disturbances in the gut microflora are going to have an impact. I, I think where the controversy lies is that uh, many researchers are kind of looking for a one-size-fits-all approach to it, that unless we can demonstrate that it causes or is a contributing factor to all autism, that uh, it, it's a non-issue. Uh, it, it appears that many in the mainstream and the research community simply cannot affect, accept the idea that even if it causes, I wouldn't say causes, contributes to autism in, say, 10% of the population, well, that's still significant. Uh, if, particularly if you're a practitioner who's dealing with one person at a time, and even more importantly, if you're a parent who is dealing with their child, 10% uh, means a lot. So I understand where researchers are looking at it as a numbers game, but the fact remains in that there are, the research is clear that in certain autistic individuals, and of course, this is where assessment comes into play. It's not going to have an impact on all of them. But certain patients, gut dysfunction, specifically as it relates to uh, microbial imbalances, could be a significant causative factor. Now, does that mean that if we balance microflora that the autism goes away? Well, not necessarily. Uh, there's the old saying, just because you took the knife out of the wound doesn't mean the wound heals. Mm -hmm. But it's a good start. And other interventions, of course, have to be uh, introduced both uh, biochemically, psychologically, behaviorally to help the autistic patient. But by removing, or I would say uh, optimizing gut microflora in the selected population where it is an issue, uh, it, it can, it can it contribute to the, uh, uh, it contribute to helping that patient. Again, it's not the only thing, but it can be very helpful. So autism is, is very interesting. It probably was a, a, it's not the majority, but it will be a small but significant population. Mm -hmm. uh, there's other research on, um, that looks at, I, I found research on uh, MS, uh, mm -hmm. multiple sclerosis, uh, 
and of course, which is a classic neurodegenerative autoimmune disorder. And uh, I, I think anytime we have any type of autoimmune disorder, uh, that uh, 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 whether it be systemic or neurologic, uh, we really do have to take a look at the impact of the gut generally and the gut microflora uh, specifically. It's going to have an impact. Uh, at, when there's imbalances of gut microflora, it will alter the immune system uh, anywhere in the body. The idea that gut microflora uh, seem to be uh, inhibited or regulated by classic compartmental walls, if you will, whether it be the gut lining or whether it be the blood-brain barrier or any other type of anatomic barrier or biochemical barrier that we're classically familiar with, um, the reality is, is that the gut microflora, either through direct impact or more often the production of uh, what they call lipopolysaccharides, and what is lipopolysaccharides? Basically, it's, it's microflora excrement is what it is. Mm -hmm. Everything that lives excretes. And uh, this excrement of certain uh, types of organisms, when there's imbalance, can circulate throughout the entire body and will have an impact on immune function uh, in anywhere in the body. And so it would make sense that we're going to see an impact uh, with multiple sclerosis. But some of the most interesting uh, research that I found uh, is uh, Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. uh, Alzheimer's disease, uh, I, I think if you interviewed, uh, if you interviewed, uh, I'd say, uh, a large population of baby boomers, uh, what do they fear the most? Uh, interestingly enough, it, it probably is not death although they may, may, say, may say that, uh, what they fear the most is dysfunction. It's not being able to do the things and be a contributor to society. Uh, it's one thing to have dysfunction in terms of you can't physically do the things you want to do, but losing mental capacity, uh, recognition of even loved ones, is maybe one of the biggest fears. And so uh, it's a big issue, and this immunologic connection uh, Alzheimer's disease is only now be, be, has begun to be fully appreciated. And just like I talked about with any other uh, illness such as MS, if you have an immunologic connection, the gut microflora will play a part. And so uh, Alzheimer's disease attracted a lot of attention in this area, and uh, it, it, it deservedly so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, lipopolysaccharides because, you know, normally those are kept in check in the gut because of tight junctions. But, you know, when patients develop a dysfunctional gut and they get a leaky gut, also known as, you know, gastrointestinal hyperpermeability, they get into the bloodstream and then they can get through the blood-brain barrier. And that's why so many people report things like depression, anxiety, insomnia, any kind of mood disorder sometimes will significantly significantly get better just by working on healing the intestinal tract you know in the lining and so that's a, a great explanation of all that plus the things you talked about before the autonomic connections there with the vagus nerve and the enteric nervous system 
Yeah, you bring up, I think, an important area. I didn't mention behavioral disorders such as uh, depression, anxiety. I didn't find a lot of research on it. But uh, with that said, uh, there is a tremendous amount of information on, uh, on the impact of inflammation and uh, depressive disorders, uh, mainly because of its impact on what is known as the kynurenine pathway, tryptophan metabolism, and how inflammation can grossly alter this. And while, I, like I said, I couldn't find a lot of information direct, directly linking gut microflora and behavioral disorders, uh, logical extrapolation suggests uh, that, uh, like I said, if there is, if depression indeed is inflammatory, in many patients it is, and if the patient demonstrates significant GI dysfunction and a history of antibiotic use and other things that would strongly suggest microflora dysfunction, as you said, from a clinical standpoint, even though we may not be able to produce a lot of uh, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies, it would make logical sense uh, to, to really address gut function when addressing behavioral disorders. Mm -hmm. These neurodegenerative disorders are obviously on the rise, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and you mentioned Alzheimer's before. Can you give some more details on Alzheimer's and that relationship with the gut microflora? Yeah. Um, there's really, um, I, I, there, there's three main factors that have to be looked at with Alzheimer's disease. I talked about one, inflammation. Uh, the other one is insulin, uh, poor insulin metabolism, insulin resistance is considered to be a major issue. Uh, disturbances in glucose metabolism in the brain, which can be created uh, by uh, uh, systemic insulin resistance, and certainly inflammation it's a vicious circle. In systemic inflammation can cause systemic uh, insulin resistance and vice versa. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's, a it's a vicious circle in that respect. But the other factor we need to look at, which probably most people in the mainstream situation are familiar with, is uh, amyloid production. This is, this is how it's classically diagnosed, is looking for uh, these plaques, amyloid plaques uh, on, on scan as defining Alzheimer's disease from just normal aging, forget where you put the keys, aging versus Alzheimer's disease. Uh, I heard a very good uh, definition from a, a lecturer one time. How do you define, how do you d differentiate normal aging from Alzheimer's disease? Normal aging is basically you forgot where you put the keys. That's not Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Alzheimer's disease is you forgot what the keys are used for. That's Alzheimer's disease. Right. Uh, and amyloid production uh, is, is also a big factor in that. Uh, there's been uh, some interesting research. Uh, we, of course, we know that the amyloid is involved, probably not to the extent that many think. But what we do know, what, what we're finding now is, well, the question needs to come from, needs to be answered, where did the amyloid come from in the first place? Uh, is it a suicide? The body just decided, oh, I'm going to basically go into neurodegeneration. No. The research is now suggesting that like uh, every other uh, uh, illness we see, the allostatic load model, that basically what we see, the, 
the body is what it's producing, is, whether it be high cholesterol, high blood pressure, it's a response. Amyloid is now considered to be a response to disturbances in insulin metabolism and inflammation. And, and, and inflammation, of course, is most uh, significant in terms of this discussion on, on gut microflora. So the body, it's, if you will, it's kind of like, I guess for lack of a better term, like a scab, if you will. Like we now know that the, the placking in the coronary arteries is basically a scab. It's, it's basically a healing process uh, generated uh, to deal with various uh, injurious agents. But if the response is too profound, that uh, the scab gets too big and it gets too fragile, it can block blood flow or it uh, uh, can crumble, if you will, like a fragile scab, and you get bleeding and forms a clot. Same thing is happening in the brain with this amyloid, that this quote-unquote healing response can be uh, so significant because like, uh, like a scar or a scab, if you will, it's non-functional tissue. So this healing response designed to fix something, unfortunately, it's non-functional tissue. And if you get too much of it, now we lose brain, uh, we lose brain function. So we do know that the gut microflora, in the process of creating inflammation, uh, is going to upregulate the uh, inflammatory cells in the brain, these microglia, and we're going to get more amyloid produced. And the same thing, the uh, gut microflora, by uh, uh, upregulating inflammatory mediators will cause more insulin resistance, and this will cause more amyloid. But there's one other area uh, that's interesting that I really wasn't aware of until I started uh, looking uh, at the research is that gut microflora can actually produce amyloid. Isn't that mm -hmm. interesting? Mm -hmm. And uh, this can go through the leaky gut into the brain and actually contribute uh, to what we see in the brain in terms of amyloid. So this idea, which I think is revolutionary and important, is that some of the amyloid in these scans came from sources outside the nervous system. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. One of the, uh, the frustrating things about all this is that we know that these connections exist, but conventional medicine doesn't really have that many tools in their box for correcting these gut issues other than, you know, antibiotics or, or a few probiotics. So why don't we shift in and, and talk about some of the things we can actually do to improve gut health, improve, improve the microflora. So can you talk about some dietary strategies and supplements? Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, nothing new here about diet. It's the usual things. It's the uh, whole foods diet. Uh, I found a particularly interesting paper that talked about how to reduce gut microflora amyloid production. And it's going to be the usual things, whole grains, fresh fruits and vegetables, the, the typical Mediterranean diet, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, no junk food. Uh, so nothing, nothing new there. In terms of uh, supplements, uh, again, nothing new here. Uh, uh, green tea uh, has been used. Different types of polyphenolic compounds uh, have been used or demonstrated to uh, uh, reduce uh, uh, amyloid. Uh, so it, it, 
really nothing new there. Some of the herbals that have been looked at, uh, no surprise here. Uh, turmeric, uh, curcumin, no surprise there. Uh, ginseng, rosemary has been demonstrated, ginger. Things that are really standard in the uh, functional medicine, alternative medicine type of practice. So basically uh, another demonstration that uh, really the idea of segmenting the body in terms of diseases and certain treatments uh, is really a very artificial approach. So you want to fix the brain, you just do what you do for the rest of the body is the real message here uh, in terms of diet and supplements. Right. And for our practitioners listening, um, you know, in order to really figure these things out, make sure you're getting a really good history going all the way back to birth and uh, when the patient, what the patient's health was like as an infant and as a child, antibiotic history, diet history, and all those kinds of things. And then a good stool analysis and uh, possibly a SIBO breath test are some good ways to to identify some of these microflora issues. Um, let's go a little bit more into detail about the impact of probiotics on Alzheimer's and, and some of the things that we've talked about. Sure. Um, of course, probiotics uh, is one of the biggest controversies in terms of do they work? What microflora, what probiotics do you give? Uh, and so there's a lot of controversy here. Uh, of course, the whole discussion um, logically would suggest that if we have a dysbiotic situation, theoretically, probiotics should work. And I'll talk about research on that in just a second. But uh, Nick, you know better than anybody that uh, just giving a probiotic to someone who has significant dysfunction, it, it, it's just not that simple. Mm -hmm. uh, and certainly, as you mentioned, assessment is crucial. I think these days, what we're beginning to understand in terms of the microflora impact systemically is that I, I tend to look at it in kind of three different, three, three different uh, types of disturbances. Uh, number one, we can just have an imbalance of resident microflora. Too, much of the, too many of the ones that are in, usually in small amounts and too little of the ones that are, in, are normally supposed to be there. The classic example, of course, is candida. Candida is supposed to be there, but you get an overgrowth. That's one uh, issue uh, that needs to be looked at. Uh, number two is, is it growing in the wrong place? Uh, we're supposed to have a little bit in your small intestine. Do you have too much? You know, the, the, the SIBO scenario, which we are seeing uh, more and more now due to various uh, scenarios. And then, of course, the, the classic, quote, unquote, and I don't like the word, but parasites. Are you getting an overt pathogen uh, mm -hmm. that may have occurred recently? And that's easy to use you to pick up in history. You can, it's easy to find out if you're... Uh, if your patient uh, uh, developed a problem and they says, well, I went to India uh, two months ago and drank the water uh, out of the Ganges, that's easy. What fools us in terms of pathogens is that these are very smart little organisms. And many times the exposure may have occurred decades ago. They went to India, they're 60 years old, now they went to India when they were in their 20s, and there's a pathogen 
that uh, has been lying dormant, but slowly creating inflammatory mediators, slowly creating uh, uh, disturb metabolic disturbances, and slowly creating uh, neurologic disturbances. And so when we look at uh, the idea of giving a probiotic, first of all, we have to have, as you suggested, some idea of what we are dealing with on a, on a baseline perspective. And stool analysis comes into play, very often uh, SIBO testing, a very good history, and again, going all the way back. You're, I, I agree with you, we very often, the, the mistake we make, we don't go far enough back, particularly in terms of the pathogens. They can mm -hmm. sit there for years in a dormant state, just waiting, just waiting until the environment is conducive to their growth. And But even when they're waiting, they can still produce inflammatory mediators, which over the years can contribute to a problem. So probiotics, I think, are going to be most effective when used uh, as part of an overall treatment plan. Do you need, uh, does the patient need some sort of uh, antimicrobial therapy due to a, a SIBO scenario, a pathogen, or overgrowth of a resident uh, organism? Do we need lifestyle modifications as there other dietary issues? But with that in mind, uh, when that's done, uh, yes, probiotics do work. I do have, a, there was a specific study that I was able to find, and uh, this was done uh, on elderly patients. They were all diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. They were between 60 and 95 years. And uh, the intervention they gave was uh, a probiotic milk uh, contained uh, four organisms, uh, three lactobacillus organisms and a, and a bifida organism. They uh, assessed by use of what is known as the MMSE, Mini Mental State Examination. And uh, they did find, uh, uh, after this intervention, they did find positive results. So now, what do we know about uh, uh, the other aspects? Uh, baseline, we, it was not mentioned in the study. And of course, not every patient responded well, but enough responded to get a significant finding. So probiotics, I think, have their place from a, a, a clinical standpoint when we're looking at uh, numbers of patients. If we just give a probiotic, it's going to be very hit or miss. On the other hand, doing this type of comprehensive approach, I think we can get some very good results. Mm -hmm. And a few additional assessment things to look at would be on blood work. You talked a little bit about insulin resistance and inflammation. So I usually look at fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, fructosamine, and fasting insulin. And then also looking at markers of inflammation like C-reactive protein, either quantitative or cardiac, highly sensitive, fibrinogen, homocysteine and erythrocyte sedimentation rate, those can give us some kind of indirect clues as to something that could be going on in the GI tract, as well as uh, CBC, complete blood count. So you can pick up a lot from there, uh, but as you said, direct testing with a stool analysis or something like that is, is going to be our, our best approach. And I've seen many insulin-resistant patients not really turn around until we've, um, so to speak, fixed their their gut. And I think that's that ties into a lot of what you talked about today. And that was kind of the sticking point 
because as you know, the microflora are so intimately involved in glucose metabolism and the rate of absorption, as well as the inflammatory component. And as you said, the more inflamed you are, the more insulin resistant you can be and vice versa. Yeah, I, I would agree 100%. Um, you know, we're now, I think all of us now in clinical nutrition, functional medicine are really, uh, really beginning to appreciate uh, that virtually all chronic illness, there's going to be an inflammatory component. It's not, it's no longer if, it's basically a matter of degree. It's going to be there. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we've often, we know, we've heard for years and years and years, treat the gut, treat the gut. And, uh, but I think very often we have talked about treating the gut when there is gut symptomatology. Uh, I, I think we have to really expand our thinking beyond just, well, I only treat the gut if they're symptomatic, to the idea if they have a chronic illness and through the methods you mentioned, finding inflammation, we really have to take a look at the gut and the gut microflora. Now, I'm not saying it's 100% that it's going to be significant enough where we have to do some type of intervention on the gut. But I would say, assume it until proven otherwise. Mm -hmm. And that, and that low grade pathogen potential that you were talking about increasing inflammation and potentially stressing the system and then creating glucocorticoid resistance due to HPA axis dysfunction and then creating more inflammation due to that resistance we could, uh, I mean, we could talk all day about all these different connections to uh, the endocrine system and the nervous system and the brain and and uh, the rest of the body. But this was a great overview and very enlightening, uh, very interesting connections there, especially with the, to know that the, the beta amyloid plaque can be produced by bacteria in the gut and then actually get into the brain and, and connect with Alzheimer's. So fascinating information. I'm going to be following this particular aspect of, of functional medicine very closely for a long time as we learn more. So thanks for coming on, Jeff. I really appreciate it. This was, uh, this was a great topic, and I'm sure it's going to be very useful to a lot of people. Well, thank you so much, and I appreciate having me on your show. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you go to drhedberg.com, I will have all the show notes and links to anything we talked about today. And until next time, this is Dr. Hedberg. Take care, everyone. If you enjoy the Dr. Hedberg Show, you can support it by sharing each episode on your social media channels, like Facebook, and by leaving a review on iTunes. Please visit drhedberg.com. That's D R H E D B E R G.com to access the show notes and resources for today's episode.